We'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. As you do so, I want to I actually begin with a question, a question that is based on the truths of Romans chapter 6. We're beginning Romans chapter 7 this morning, and so I've just finished Romans chapter 6. If you and I are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, as Romans chapter 6 tells us, and we are to present our members to righteousness, which leads to sanctification, then let me ask you, what have you identified in your life that needs to change? That's really the question that comes out of last week's message. Are there any members, are there any parts of your life that you are presenting to sin as though sin were still your master? Remember, members are the members of ourselves, our our faculties, our capacities, that's everything about us. The Christian life is about growth and change. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel changes us. It changes us. The gospel has saved us, and it will save us ultimately and in the end, but it is also in the process of saving us by transforming our lives. Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 can be summarized as the promise of the gospel. And what is that promise? The assurance of glory. We are promised glory. Those who come to God in faith to be justified by the death and resurrection of Jesus are assured glory and eternal life. We live as God's people with this promise. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, begins this declaration of glory, and chapter 8 concludes it, really elaborates on it, opens up what this new life in the Spirit is, what it means to live under the, the invincible love of God and never be separated from it. But chapters 5, beginning in verse 12, then chapter 6 and 7, all deal with the present problem of sin. How is the believer in Jesus supposed to deal with the lingering presence of sin? Now, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, tell us that we are in Christ and not in Adam. Everyone is born in Adam, fallen sinful, under the condemnation of death and the power of sin. In Christ, there is life. In him, life now reigns. Chapter 6 tells us that we have died to sin, that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. It tells us to consider ourselves dead to sin, to reckon ourselves that way to resist sin's efforts to reign over us because in the end it has no dominion over us. Also tells us we are slaves to righteousness now and are to present ourselves for service, which leads to sanctification, which leads to eternal life. 
When we come to chapter 7, Paul is still addressing the problem of sin in the Christian's life, but now in terms of the law. To be enslaved to sin is to be under the law. The law's operations have to be resolved. And now we've seen Paul talk about the law already a lot in the book of Romans. And in many places, he talks about the law as the special revelation of God that was given to a particular people group, the Jews, and how the Jews have looked at the law and they say, well, we have the law. The rest of the world is under the wrath of God, but we have the law. We are a privileged people, and in many ways they were because of that, but the law only brought condemnation. It only made them more culpable to God. The law did not bring them out of the wrath of God, deliver them out of the wrath of God. And so Jew and Gentile alike, Jew and the rest of the human race, are all under the wrath of God, whether they have the law or not. And in giving the law to the nation of Israel, God actually revealed his righteous standard to all of humanity. So we are all, in that sense, under the law. Now, just so you know, Romans chapter 7 is widely considered the most difficult chapter in the entire book of Romans. It has a lot of interpretive challenges. I think these are mostly answered by the context. There is especially a lot of debate over Paul's struggle with the flesh in verses 14 through 25. And many of you will be familiar with these verses. I do what I do not want to do, and the thing I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. O wretched man that I am. Is this wrestling with the flesh from the perspective of a Christian or is it from the perspective of an unbeliever? Because of all these difficulties, I've decided to preach all of this in one message today, okay? (laughs) One 90-minute message. I'm afraid that if I took several messages and tried to trace out every difficulty and every controversy in these verses will actually miss the main reason Paul says all of this in the first place. And that is to encourage us to keep fighting the presence of sin in our lives, to not despair because we are no longer under the law. So I want to give you then today three foundations for freedom. Three foundations for freedom, just as a way of breaking up Romans chapter 7. Let me pray for us and then we'll... We'll get to it. Lord, we come to this chapter today looking at its difficulties and how dense it is. And Lord, we were reminded that this book is not of human origin, that there are human authors. But Father, you have revealed this. And while there are many difficult truths in it, you have made it intelligible. You have made it so that we can understand it, even if we must wrestle with it. And Lord, so open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to hear and to see and to love you. In your name we pray, amen. Let's begin with Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. You have died to the law. This is the first foundation of freedom. You have died to the law. 
Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code." So in the same way that we have died to sin, back in chapter 6, verse 1, so we have died to the law. Now this is the law being the law of Moses. This is the old covenant. Then its entire system. Paul is actually going back to chapter 6, verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under what? Grace. You are no longer under law, you are under grace. How come we're no longer under law and its demands? Because we've died. Verses 2 and 3 provide an illustration. The law that binds a man and woman in marriage is undone. It is rendered void only if one dies. And this, this is why traditionally in wedding vows... It was always said, till death do us part. Again, that's traditional. I don't know how common that is in weddings at large anymore. But we would vow in marriage till death do us part. And we have died to the law then by the same means we died to sin through the body of Christ. That's verse 4. Now, verses 2 and 3 are not really about marriage. They tell us something about marriage, but really they're just an illustration, right? If somebody dies, a partner, a husband or a wife dies, the other is not bound by the law, but death is the only exit. We have our exit from the law because we have died, and that is the only exit. That is the only way of getting out from under the rule of the law. Our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection releases us from the dominion of the law and its requirements. And what are the requirements of the law? Perfect obedience or death. That's it. Perfect obedience or death. This means then that we have died Through the body of Christ, it means that we belong to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So verse 4 is the key verse in in this entire passage. We have died to the law through the body of Christ and now belong to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So again, we see this, the old has gone, the new has come. 
We were living in the flesh, verse 5. All aspects of our lives were driven by sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, which is what he's going to explain a few verses from now. And all of this was leading to death. That's where we were. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law because we've died to it in Christ. And we have new purpose, and that is to serve in the new way of the Spirit. And this word serve is the same word, it's the verb that was the noun slave in chapter 6. So Paul is picking up on this theme. Now, slaves of righteousness, now we serve We slave away, if you will, in the new way of the Spirit. So our new lives are defined by and empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is part of the new program. That's part of the new age. That's part of the new life. So we serve now in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, Paul is not saying that the law or the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, shouldn't be read or studied, that it is legalistic, so to speak, but he is saying that this, the old way of the written code was an external written demand requiring perfect conformity. That was an entire system We don't serve in that way anymore. Now watch. To be an Adam, think through, if you've been with us through the study of Romans, I'm going to reach back. I'm going to take all these terms, okay, starting back in chapter 5. To be an Adam is to be enslaved to sin, which is to be under the law, which is to live in the flesh, which is to be a captive of the law, and to bear fruit for death, serving in the old way of the written code. These are all the same thing. These are all the same realm or the same kingdom, if you will. They all belong together. They're describing the same condition, the same place in life. On the other hand, to be in Christ, to be dead to sin and alive to God... To be slaves of righteousness, to be under grace, is to be released from the law, is to bear fruit for God, and to be serving in the new way of the Spirit. These are all the same realm. These all belong together. These are all different aspects of looking at these two ways of life, two conditions of the entire human race. You are either in one or the other. Now, why is explaining our relationship to the law so important? Why does this matter? Well, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, because we were all under the law. Yes, the law was specifically given to the nation of Israel, but God's standard was revealed there for the entire human race. Under that system, the only way to know God, the only way to approach God, the only way to please God was to come to the nation of Israel and worship Israel's God the way Israel worshiped him. That was the only way. 
In that sense, then, the whole human race was under the law. It has to be that way because back in chapter 6, verse 14, when Paul says, you are no, no longer under the law, but under grace, who's he talking to? He's not just talking to Jewish believers. He's talking to all believers. So everybody under the human, in the human race is in some way under the law. But now those who are Christians, those who have believed in Jesus Christ, trusted in his sacrifice, and now stand before God justified, made right with him, are under grace. So we were under the law. The standard was revealed for the whole human race. Also, the law is a system in which sin thrives and grows. This is why it's important to understand that you are not under the law, that you have died to the law. Because under the law, sin thrives and grows. The law is a system of commandments that must be kept, an obedience that is not attainable because we were living life in the flesh. We can't be free from sin's mastery and still live in its house, still live in the house that it has hijacked, the law. Now look again at verses 5 and 6, okay? Verse 4 is the main verse. Verses 5 and 6 then become two subheadings, all right? You have died to the law. Verse 6 introduces the new way of the Spirit. That becomes the heading for chapter 8, where Paul is going to take this truth that we live in the new way of the Spirit, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and he's going to elaborate, and it's a glorious chapter. Verse 5 explains why we had to die to the law through verses 7 through 25 here. So from verse 5, Paul now takes it and elaborates through the rest of chapter 7 what he means when he says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. How did that work? And he's made some other statements like that already in Romans where he's talked about the law only brought death. The law couldn't save. The law couldn't justify the law doesn't remove anybody from under God's wrath. In fact, it only exposes sin and makes somebody more culpable, more guilty, and increases guilt. So how does that work, though? How can that be? So verse 5, then, this reality produces two questions about the law, and you can see them there the next couple of paragraphs. The first one is found in verse 7. Is the law sin? Does it amount to sin itself? Is it sinful in and of itself? That is to say, is the law the root of sin or the cause of sin? The second question, look at verse 13. Did the law bring death? Paul's answers to both of these questions here vindicate the law. By no means. Here we go again. This is the same thing we've seen throughout all these chapters, right? By no means. No way. Absolutely not. That is Paul's answers to these two questions. 
His answers then demonstrate the law's futility to bring life and to give victory. Right? So the law is good. So this is the second point here, the second foundation. The first foundation from freedom from the law is that you have died to the law by being united with Christ through faith in his death and resurrection, you've died to the law. And that's the only way out of the law. That's the only way to come out of its condemnation and the wrath that follows. So the second foundation for freedom then is the law is good, but it cannot bring life. The law is good, but it cannot bring life. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the problem is not the law itself. The problem is sin, because sin has exploited the law. The phrase here, seizing an opportunity, which he uses twice, sin seized the opportunity, was used in military language, military context, for establishing a bridgehead. So there would be an insertion of the army. They would battle it out. They would establish a bridgehead. And then from there, they would form a base of operations. What Paul is saying when he says sin seized an opportunity is that sin took the law and formed a bridgehead into our lives as a base of operations. Sin hijacks the law and makes it an unwitting accomplice to bring us under condemnation, to enslave us to sin instead of bringing us life. Now, the specific example that Paul gives in verse 7 is the 10th commandment. I hope you knew that, right? When you read it, you went, oh yeah, that's commandment number 10. Thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet. And he's probably chosen this one because it was held widely in Paul's day to be at the root of all sins, and being the last, the final of the Ten Commandments was kind of a summary of what was going on in the human heart behind all of the rest of them, this coveting. Now, we have a real narrow use of the word of coveting. We usually think, I want something somebody else has. But, but coveting means is everything about desiring things that are out of bounds, So, you shall not covet then becomes this kind of summary of all of the commandments. 
When Paul says I, and you'll notice this here, Paul switches over to a personal pronoun. He says, I, right? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. It produced in me. I was once alive apart from the law. So he starts to talk about himself. Now, Paul is referring to himself, but he's not just talking about himself. He is pointing to himself and his own experience as the representation of every person. This is the reality for every human being. What he says of himself represents the condition and the experience for you and for me. So when he says then in verses 9 through 11, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. This is true of everybody. This is true of everybody. So everyone was alive apart from the law, but died when the commandment came, and sin came to life. Now, what Paul is saying in this is, is from the vantage point of how we experience it. We already know from back in chapter 5 that the law didn't have to be present, meaning revealed to Moses and the nation of Israel for sin to already exist. It already existed and death already reigned. He's very clear about that in chapter 5. From Adam to Moses, death reigned. People died. That was a, a living, dying testimony to the, the, that the curse was active, that sin was real, that the curse was active. So what Paul is talking about here is talking about the awareness of guilt and condemnation. Let me illustrate it this way. To confront sin with the law is like trying to put out smoldering logs. Think of a campfire that has died down, and it's just those kind of burning embers. If you want to put that out, what do you do? You can dump water on it. You can dump sand on it. You can let it burn out, but let's just assume there, the burning embers, there they are. You want to put it out. You do not blow oxygen onto it. Confronting the human condition of sin with the law is like trying to put out the fire by blowing oxygen on it. What's the effect? It actually only increases the flammability. It only increases the flames. It only creates a smoldering fire into a blaze. That's what blowing oxygen onto it does. That's what the, the effect of the law is when Paul says, I was, I was alive, but the commandment came in sin, he doesn't mean that I didn't have sin. I was spiritually alive and connected to God, and then, and then the commandment came, and then I sinned. He means that I was alive in the sense that the, the sin was just there like the burning embers of a fire. When the commandment came, I died. I caught on fire. I blazed up. That's, that's what he's saying. So the condition of sin was already there. 
And when the law came, it was like oxygen to the fire. So Paul concludes then that the problem is not the oxygen. The problem is not the law itself. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul, in a way, is vindicating the law. He's saying, he's answering the question or the accusation, okay, well, if, if, I, if the law came and I was spiritually dead and I had to die to it to not live under it, then the problem must be with the law, right? And he's saying, no, the law in and of itself is not sin. It's holy and righteous and good. However, the law is incapable of bringing life It only increases and intensifies sin. And the only way out of that system is to die. It's to die through the body of Christ who was also raised from the dead. How are we united with Christ in his death and his resurrection? There's only one answer. Faith. That's it. Faith. We believe the promise of God. We receive the gospel by faith. So, the law is good, but it cannot bring life. Lastly, the law is good, but it cannot give victory. The law is good, but it cannot give victory. This is the second question from verse 5. It starts in verse 13 here. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, absolutely not. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate." Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing." Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And one of the biggest questions in this chapter is the question of whether or not Paul is describing the struggle of an unbeliever or a believer. Both of them have very strong arguments. And I will tell you that I wrestled through these verses so much that I actually changed my position 
based on seeing this in its context. And I changed my mind a couple of times last night, back and forth, okay? And the answer, I believe, the position I land on today, you might be able to convince me later on today of the other ones, is that this is an unbeliever, okay? Now, let me explain why. First of all, look at these phrases that Paul uses, sold under sin, captive to the law of sin, body of death, serving the law of sin, Aren't these contradictory to everything Paul has just said in verses five and um, chapters five and six? These are the opposite of what he has just said about the position of a person who is in Christ. You are no longer sold to sin, sold under sin. Is his whole argument in chapter six? Not that you have been freed from sin or the law of sin. So there is then these contradictions. It's hard to sustain that a Christian would ever be uh, described, especially right after chapter 6, described as being sold under sin and enslaved to the law of sin, captive, Secondly, look again at verse 13. Paul is talking here about bringing of death. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. How does that happen? What is that process? It's the process that he portrays in verses 14 through 25 in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, that the law increases sin into something that you can't handle. That is what is portrayed in verses 14 through 25. An inability, a complete incapacity to gain any victory over sin. And how the law creates this scenario. Also, verse 14 begins with this phrase. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. So, All of these verses are talking about are portraying someone who is under the law. Are you and I under the law? You are no longer under the law. You are under grace. So sin then is in operation. Sin because of the law, which is introduced in verse 14. This is life under the law. And the fundamental contrast in verse 14 is the law is spiritual. A person trying to live under the law is of the flesh. Okay? All right. How can an unbeliever, though, this is the other side. How can an unbeliever 
be described as wanting to do good and especially delighting in the law of God and serving the law of God with his mind. Does that describe an unbeliever? It's hard to see that, isn't it? See why this is such a difficult passage and why I'm going to get today, we're going to be done with it. We're going to move to chapter 8. This is hard to describe. However, the context of someone under the law, think about this. A person who has the law, and in particular Paul, now Paul is a Jew, and he experiences the law. There is something personal here. I mean, he's saying I, but it's not just him. But Paul is coming under the law, someone who has accepted that the law is God's revelation of a right standard of how to please him and have access to him, delights in the law in the sense of they want to keep it. They feel like they have to keep this law. They are motivated to it. If you read Psalm 19, the law gives light to my path. The law and op- uh, gives light to the eyes. It, it, um, it lights the path for the heart. It encourages the heart. All of these things that the law does, who would not desire that? Someone who is under the law and under the old covenant is going to delight in the law in that sense. They are going to want to serve the law in their mind. In other words, I think the answer is this delight, this serving with the mind is from the perspective of someone who has recognized the law as God's standard. They are aware of the system. The reality is that every person is under the law. Whether the degree to which they recognize it or not varies. Even to the extent that someone is saying, I'm not under the law, but they are. Understand that. We usually think of, like the world thinks of, if you're a Christian, if you belong to God's people, you come under God's reign. Those who don't believe, those that don't accept, are over here, out from under God's rules and reign. Uh Uh-uh. The opposite is true. The entire world is under the law of God and will be judged according to it. Only The only people ever throughout history from the beginning to the end who will not be judged under the law are those who are under what? Grace. So you are the ones, I'm the one. We as the people of God are the ones who are not under the law. The rest of the world is under the law. The law that came through the people of Israel. So to me, it's easier to to reconcile this delighting in the law from the perspective of someone who is not a Christian, who is not a regenerate person, than it is to describe a Christian as sold under sin, enslaved, captive to the law of sin. Okay, now like I said, the, the, the struggle for us, I think, is we read this and we go, but that's exactly what I experience every day as a Christian. yes because we still wrestle with sin. This passage is not saying you won't wrestle with sin. In fact, chapter 6 has already made it clear, you're slaves of righteousness, but you have to present yourselves to righteousness. There is always the temptation to keep presenting your members to sin as a master. 
Because that's what you've always done before you were saved, before you were a Christian. So there is still the lingering presence of sin. There is still the struggle with sin. And these verses describe what we feel. They describe what we experience when we love God. We've been saved. We know we've come to the cross. Our sins have been forgiven, but we still fall into temptation. We didn't want to do that thing. And yet we did it. We disobeyed. We sinned. We wanted to do what was right, but we failed to do what was right. That is very much a Christian experience as we struggle with sin. Paul talks about, throughout his epistles, several places. Put off the old man. Put off those things. Put on the new man, which is in Christ. Colossians 3 and 4 and Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. So there, there is that struggle. Paul captures it in other places. But this right here captures someone who is trying to live under the law. Now, let's take a look at them, okay? We'll start in verse 13. The law doesn't bring death, by no means. Sin, using the law as a vehicle, brings death. Ultimately, then, what the law does, Paul says here in verse 13, is it exposes sin. Sin uses the law to make the most of itself, and it is exposed and represented completely because the law calls it out and says, that's sin, that's wrong, that's a transgression, okay, that is out of bounds. Secondly, it makes sin sinful beyond measure. This doesn't just mean it. It increases sin. It means that it makes sin something more than you can handle. The burning logs, the embers, controllable. But when the law hits it, and that oxygen ignites that, the flames, it becomes uncontrollable. It becomes something you can't handle, something you can't account for. So it fans sin into a blaze that you can't control. Now, Paul expresses then this struggle, okay? In three cycles, there's a pattern here. It may not look like it at first, but there's a pattern in verses 14 through 25. Three different times, he expresses a desperate condition, okay? For we know, verse 14, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, Verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. These are all the desperate condition of every human being. There's also then this futile struggle like in verses 15 and 16, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. Verses 18 and 19 have the same thing. And then verses 24 and part of 25. And then he ends each of these with a tragic conclusion. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 21, so I find, to, uh, find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
And the end of verse 25, so then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, uh, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. You see the pattern? So there's always this, this, uh, this desperate condition, this futile struggle, and then this tragic conclusion as he goes through these bouts of wanting to do what's right and trying to live up to the law. All of them portray this life under the law. The law is good, but it cannot give victory. It does not deliver. Right? So we see in here this slavery language. I've sold under sin. When he says sin dwells within me, he's saying, he's not saying it's no longer I who do it, it's sin. I'm not really guilty. Sin's actually doing it, kind of like it takes over. What he's saying is, uh, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's saying, I really don't have a choice in the matter. I'm a pawn under the reign of sin. That's what he means. The end result is, no matter how much I look at the law, how much I see that it's perfect, how much it reveals God in his standard and what will happen to me under his wrath, if I don't obey completely, I am a pawn under the power of sin, period. No matter how much I tread water and try to stay above, no matter how much I try to check off all the boxes, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In other words, I recognize the law is the manual. It promises life. He's already said that. The law promised life, but it ended up bringing only death because of sin. I delight in the law of God in that I want to attain it. I want to have eternal life. I don't want to come under wrath. But I see this in my members another law, and he uses the word law here differently. It's a principle that's at work. This principle is always at work in my life. This causes him finally in verse 24, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The first part of verse 25 is the one crack of light in all of this. And it really kind of sets up where he's going to go in chapter 8. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He can't even continue to portray this awful, wretched enslavement to sin under the law without just going, how wretched that was, how wretched any person is who's trying to do this. Oh, thanks be to God, I'm not in that anymore. He just breaks out with that. So each conclusion then ends or portrays a a torn person. This really portrays how people live. Now, again, not everybody is as conscious of the law. But they do live under right and wrong and are always in this place of duplicity and going, I know this is right and I know this is wrong, but I live this way, but I'm going to be moral, whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. And the more they know about the law, the more they know about right and wrong, the greater the divide is, the greater the tear. If this is an unbeliever, how come it describes so well our struggle with sin? 
Because we do struggle with sin again, right? We do struggle with sin. And sometimes we feel like verse 24, wretched person that I am, who is going to deliver me? Because I want to obey God. I love God, but I keep falling into this temptation. I keep doing this thing, or I just can't bring myself to do what is right here over and over again. Again, Paul talks about it. The New Testament talks about it. Put on, put off. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, uh, 5 through 7. If we confess our sins, I'm sorry, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an ongoing thing for the believer. Okay, so, but because uh, we struggle with sin, we must resist it. We have to flee from it. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. This condemnation, this is why in chapter 8, verse 1, he's going to say, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's going back to chapter 7, verse 6. But now you are released from the law. He's even going to talk about the law and the spirit in chapter 8. Paul's point here for us is, if this is the case, if you have been released from the law, if you are free from the law, the law is no hope of glory. You don't live under it anymore. And when you come to the point, when you feel the weight of sin, it is not despair. Who will deliver me? You're already delivered. That's the whole point of chapters five and six. You are already standing in grace. (laughs) You are already dead to sin. You have died to the law. You are a slave of righteousness. And the more you hear that and the more you preach that to yourself, because that's what God says is true of you, the greater victory you will have over sin day in and day out. So the key for us is, really verses 24 and 25 in a sense, because as a Christian, you've already come to that deciding point in verse 24. You've already at some point to some degree have to have come to the point, oh, wretched person that I am, who will deliver me? That's when you come to the foot of the cross. That's when you embrace through faith the sacrifice of Christ in your place on the cross and declare victory over sin. Because you are forgiven, right? Lord, I pray that you will help us to take these truths about the law and how we have died to it, to renew our minds, to equip us, to live in a way that pleases you, to bear fruit for you. Chapter 7, verse 4, that you you have already delivered us. And that we don't come under that system. Lord, we give you praise and we give you thanks for our freedom from the law. You have given us new hearts to obey because of the spirit who is with us. And so, Lord, be pleased with our worship this morning. And may we sing with these truths in our hearts and minds. Amen.